Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In today's episode, Drumming to the Beat of Recovery, I will be speaking with Jim Sonnefeld, drummer of the band Hootie and the Blowfish. In his younger years, Jim was an avid soccer player, but always knew that music would play a part in his life. Jim was asked to join the rock band Hootie and the Blowfish as their drummer in 1989. The group, which is made up of college friends from the University of South Carolina, rose to stardom in the 1990s with such hits as Hold My Hand, Let Her Cry, and Only Want to Be With You. Jim enjoyed that life of success. But along the way, the partying lifestyle, which often accompanied that life, resulted in an addiction to alcohol and drugs. He is now here to share the story of his life, including his time with the band, his struggle with addiction, and ultimately his journey to recovery. So I'd now like to welcome Jim to our show. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you from one official James to another. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that you've been able to be on our show. I'd like to start by asking you, Jim, where were you born and raised? And can you tell us about your family's origins? Where did they come from? What do you know about that? Well, I uh, was born along with my three brothers, not my sister, but my three brothers all in Lansing, Michigan. My dad grew up in Michigan. My mom grew up in Michigan. So our main line goes right up there through uh, different parts of Michigan. So I I guess technically a Michigander, though I wasn't fully raised there. And so we have lines that go back on my dad's side all the way to his ancestor who came over in the late 1800s, Joseph Sonnefeld, Josef, probably called. I don't know. That's probably horrible German (laughs) accent there. Uh, Joseph came over to, you know, seek greater things and opportunities from Germany. And he ended up, you know, sort of taking that line straight through if you went from uh, east to west and hit Lake Michigan at some point and stopped. And, and said, there he stopped. Here I am. And, you know, he's up in the north northwest corner, uh, Manistee, I think, area, Stronach. So we know they were mainly Western Europeans and came over and continued the family line there. And on my mom's side, I know for sure that there was some German in there too. The Hornburgers, they came from Germany, but they had married into, as did my father's side, married into Irish mainly ancestry. So we have a Irish-German mixture, what we know today. Some people have done some ancestry searches the old-fashioned way, and then others have all done the DNA test. So it's the picture still unfolding as many of ours, our, our pictures are unfolding. So yeah, it's, it all goes through Michigan. Now there's a lot of people who are finding surprises in their family roots and in their DNA, which is you're hearing more stories as time goes on and more people are doing that. Yeah, we have, uh, through my dad's research over, over a decade, we felt like it was coming up mostly German and Irish through a more recent DNA sampling there's saying uh, general uh, British and Irish, which could mean really Scott, depending on how you label it, Scotland or England. And so I think it's still unfolding. I mean, there's some crazy things coming on 
through a lot of my extended family of people connecting where they never thought they would connect by DNA and getting in touch and even the odd child popping up <laughs> decades later. Hey, not ashamed here. It's life that uh, uh, came up much later in life, but discovered through DNA testing. Yeah, it's a really fascinating time that we live in. It certainly is. So Jim, growing up in Michigan, what can you tell us about your early childhood, uh, your childhood in general, actually, maybe a little about your mom and dad? What can you tell us? They grew up Roman Catholic, German Irish, probably middle class in central and uh, lower Michigan. And they met at, she was 19, I think, and he was seven years older. And they did the traditional start popping out kids. And uh, we stayed there while all the boys were born. But we, my dad was chasing a, a good job that he could uh, support his family with. And so we moved from Michigan to Northern Virginia, to Illinois, back to Northern Virginia, back to Illinois. And so I ended up raised on the other side of Lake Michigan in a suburb of Chicago called Naperville, which was a real small farm town of about 25,000 people in the early 70s when we found that place. Wow. What did your dad do for a living that he traveled all over like that? He was in transportation. So he was in, uh, I think, the DOT in Michigan a little bit and just looking for that opportunity. Where And so it took him to D.C. There was a great opportunity, but then he got a great opportunity in uh, Illinois. And so it went back and forth. I think I went to different schools for preschool, kindergarten, first, second, and third. And we landed finally, and I started putting my roots down. Tough being that new kid in the class every year, huh? You know, it's part of my, I guess, uh, my nurturing or my naturing. Which one is that? When you learn from the things around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you learn to be the new kid. I was a bit shy and I was a middle child, so that that says traditionally I'm also feel neglected. <laughs> I'm also into the balance and the equality, and so. <laughs> You're a diplomat. Diplomatic, yes, absolutely. Except for when it comes to my kids, I don't care for diplomacy. <laughs> More of a dictatorship at that point, right? <laughs> I'll take it. Sometimes it works. Yeah. So with. Moving around a lot, were you able to be in one place long enough to meet and get to know extended family, like grandparents? Did you know them? Were, were there any people who influenced your life early? We were well in touch with the grandparents on both sides. They had been in Michigan and New York, and eventually South Carolina was where two of my grandparents retired. And uh, we had some extended family there, and we we did. There was always an attempt to either go to a family member's house, parents usually, grandparents, at a holiday, or have them come our way. So we had a lot of variety of going over to Michigan or people coming to Illinois when we settled there. And as we got a little older, we were traveling to South Carolina to visit different relatives. And so those are the main places we would go. But it was... I would say mostly the grandparents that we ended up being around the most. And I, I did enjoy that as a kid. There's something warm and fuzzy about 
a grandparent in general, at least there was in my family, that knowing someone that is that old, I say that old, they were probably younger than I am today, but they, you know, they were the oldest ones of people that I knew. And so there was a bit of a interest in, wow, like, what is it like being that old? And, you know, when they told stories about growing up and different things that were different, of course, I just thought that was an intriguing history to delve into a little bit. And they're all very different people, even though they're all four uh, from Michigan, they had distinct personalities. It's so important, I think, and that's one of the reasons we do this podcast to tell and listen to stories, particularly in families, because at one point in time, it was just oral history. Not too many people knew how to read and write. So history was passed down by storytelling from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think even today, even though we can read and write, we don't often document what we hear from our elders, from people within our family. So I think it's very important to ask questions and for people to learn from prior generations. They've been through things that we haven't. And perhaps when we hear about what they went through, we'll know how to better handle what we go through. I envy a family, yeah, that is able to sit around themselves and converse, multi-generational from grandparents to parents to children, even maybe great grandchildren. They're able to gather and not have to be doing a thing, going to an event or watching a TV, but ones that can sit around a table and just converse. I love to be a fly on that wall and hear what they have to say, because that's where they came from, was sitting around and talking. So all of my Midwestern relatives that are mostly gone now, it was always intriguing to sit around, boring at times when I was younger, but the stories as you get older are really, you, you realize there's no documentation of what they're talking about. There's no pictures. There's not a video of the thing they did when they were a kid. There's barely a newspaper that they could find. And I think that's cool. Oh, definitely cool. So Jim, your childhood, what kind of things did you do for fun? Well, once we got to what was maybe a typical suburb, Naperville, Illinois, we did a lot outside. It was all about sports and it was about music too in my family. My mom and my dad had a pretty diverse record collection and my mom always inspired us to listen to different stuff, even modern rock at the time in the late 60s and early 70s. She was hip to that. And my dad being a little older probably came from the Elvis group, but he liked the new music too. So we listened to a lot of music. My mom tried to engage us to sing, but that was embarrassing. And she engaged us to dance and that was even more embarrassing. But we played a lot of sports in our family. My mom taught tennis. We played baseball. All the kids were in football. We all were part of a swimming pool. And then somewhere along the way, soccer got in there. I think when we lived in Vienna, Virginia or Alexandria, one of my older brothers joined up as a probably an eight-year-old kid. And, and I thought that was a pretty cool thing. So when we went to Naperville, Illinois, there was no league. And my parents were part of a group of about a dozen people who started from scratch what is now one of the biggest Western suburb soccer leagues in Illinois called the Naperville Youth Soccer League. Really? Yep. Other interested parents and a group of a uh, couple German people, an Iranian guy, an Australian couple. It was diverse in that way as football is known as the world sport. So uh, yeah, we got to be there at the inception and I loved it. That was before long became 
my sport. That was the one I had this intrigue for and a willingness just to spend as much time as I could, you know, in it in any way. Now, did you get pretty good at it? I did get pretty good at it. And we all played sports and that helped me. Frankly, I'll have to say this, playing basketball and football and baseball helped me be a better soccer player down the road because I had all these different ways of being physical. Anyway, I mostly spent time. And if I could be on a team, I was always on a team. If I was at a camp in the summer, that was good with me. And then I played a lot on my own. And later in high school, I got an opportunity through my dad's connections to join a club team that was about to embark on a two-week expedition. Exhibition. <laughs> I guess it was an expedition uh, to Germany to play soccer with uh, some friendly matches with some German clubs that this club team from Aurora had some connections to because there was a couple of German players. So I was so thrilled and I was very thrilled to get the opportunity, but I came back from that trip on fire for soccer, really wanting to play it as much as I could and had to consider would I take it to the college level. And that's where I first started considering, gosh, I could play for four more years. And I had the dream to play division one soccer, which is ultimately what led me from you know, Chicago, Illinois, to Columbia, South Carolina at the University of South Carolina. I'm going to ask you about that. But first, I want to back up a little bit. So you were introduced by your mom and your dad, to some extent, to music. Were you playing any instruments? Or were you involved in any groups or anything like that early on? My body was moving and my mind was thinking in a way that dictated I would be a drummer. I was born with the tippy tapping of my fingers, the kicking of my feet, even at an early age, an insane uh, sound I could not turn off in my own head that was rhythm, that was music. And to this day, I, I can't really pat it down or push it down. It is just there. And I've always said, when people ask about being a drummer, I was just born a drummer. <laughs> so when I reached about the seventh grade, I think it uh, uh, turned out it would be cheaper than a psychologist to send Jimmy to uh, the music store and get some music lessons in drumming because he <laughs> won't stop tapping on things. That's good. But was soccer more your passion than drumming or were they both equal passions? They were equal and they worked separately. Soccer, since we had a league and teams and fields, I could do that as much as I wanted outside of school and sleeping. Drumming was more difficult because it really would have required at that time joining a group of a band, finding guys that played instruments and had a like some of the same music. And that was a much smaller group in our community. And I just didn't, uh, just didn't tap into that. I really spent more time on the sports because it was a little more accessible. It didn't mean I didn't spend a ton of time in my basement on my drum set with a big pair of Pioneer goofy headphones from the 70s, much bigger than the ones you're wearing right now, James, uh, listening to the Eagles and Creedence Clearwater Revival and the Who and you name it, just drumming along, getting getting ready for something to happen. <laughs> wow. So let's talk back on soccer again. So where did this passion for soccer and your developing skill bring you? Well, by the time I got to take a wonderful trip to Germany to see how the world 
saw soccer, it inspired me to think, wow, I'm, I'm, this is helping me be part of a bigger thing. I really felt that there, uh, culturally and uh, on a sporting level, I could see how, and I loved how Italians and Mexicans and Germans and British worked together to cross cultures with soccer. And I never really saw that too much with American football or so much with American baseball, some with baseball, but, uh, and certainly at that time, not really with basketball. So I thought, yeah, soccer, I want to, I want it to take me somewhere. So I looked around at some colleges and uh, there were some in the Midwest that I probably could have gotten into, but I had this sort of lofty dream of division one soccer. I felt, I just intuited, I can make it. I, I am that level. But unfortunately, I wasn't really getting a lot of invitations. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> yes. So we drove all the way to South Carolina on, to visit family in the spring break my senior year and got a promise from the coach there that I could try out in August. And this is was a risky proposition because there was no guarantee. So I applied to the school, got in, got accepted, went down in the summer to prepare for the ridiculous heat and change of climate and the fact that I was, you know, trying out against kids that were on full scholarships and had come from faraway places, highly recruited. So I took a big chance. It paid off. I was the one player that coach Mark Burson took on his team in August of 1983 at the varsity level. So I made the team. Woo that was my dream. I'd been achieved to get to the next level, to have an opportunity. Wow. You must've been flying pretty high at that point. I was really uh, overjoyed. It was mostly just on a personal level. I didn't make a promise or a, you know, to anyone out there in the world, watch me do this, or I'm going to do this. I just wanted it. And that's all I needed. I'm thankful for my parents that could help me get there. Just do something that looked like it wasn't the easiest path for an 18 year old boy to take. Now, let me ask you, did you have a major that you were interested in or were you sort of a liberal arts or where were you going academically? Did you have any thoughts about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, I had the same thoughts that put me on the soccer field was soccer. <laughs> I didn't, sadly, I didn't have many other thoughts. I was very intrigued with the Spanish language. We grew up next to a big community of Central Americans and Mexicans called Aurora, Illinois. And I uh, played soccer over there and watched my dad referee. So I thought that's maybe the only thing I'm interested in outside of soccer and music. So I had a double major of business and Spanish. And that was probably a good place to start. Unfortunately, I, I didn't get into studying enough. I didn't, couldn't apply myself, uh, enjoyed the partying and the soccer greatly and meeting a lot of girls. But I didn't do what it took. And I was headed back to Illinois after just two semesters uh, failing out of school and only by a technicality and taking multiple summer school classes could I get back in on probation to the university, which I quickly did and sort of was a good wake-up call for me. And that, along with having broken my foot in my first soccer game my freshman year, sort of inspired me. There's one of those things that it's not the easiest. It's a, it seems like a setback, but ultimately in the long run, it makes you strive a little harder to achieve that goal. Yeah. So now you're back in school and you're still playing soccer. I guess your foot healed. Okay. Did you continue playing soccer for the rest of the time at South Carolina? 
Well, the interruption I had was after basically three years of soccer. We had a great season my third year. We were in the final eight. It was tremendous. And um, I had sort of a wall and I took a gap year against a lot of advice of parents and advisors and my teammates. I just really woke up one day and was like, I, I need to get away from the books, which were not satisfying me. The, the soccer, even to some level, I wasn't sure about. I took a gap year and the first thing I wanted to do was find a band to play in, interestingly enough. That music bug was growing in me as I continued in soccer in college and it was growing you know, quietly. I just felt like I wanna do something different for a little while. Can I please just take a break from school? And I knew I wanted to join a band and that I did. <laughs> That's where we're gonna go next, but I wanted to finish the part about school by asking, did you go back after that gap year and finish up? After a gap year and playing in a band that was writing their own music and trying to record, I again sort of woke up one day thinking, hmm, you know, I have a chance for a college education to go forward and really, you know, get a degree, which is what my parents hoped for, and I should take it. I really should go back and finish that up. It was a sort of unfinished dream, mainly inspired by working a day job and playing in a band, I realized that not everybody gets an opportunity for college. And so I had an appreciation for that, went back, changed my majors, my major into a creative major called media arts, photography, audio recording, video production. And that was right up my alley. I could be creative and earn a degree. So I got back in, played my senior year. We had another great season. We were ranked number one and two throughout the year. And as soon as I finished my last you know, minute on the soccer field, I was looking for another band to join. <laughs> That's a great segue. Tell us about your music after college. Well, I continued, I left myself a few classes that I had to finish before actually receiving a degree, three semesters worth to be exact. But the first band I joined was a great classic rock cover band here on the campus called Tootie and the Jones. I worked with them for uh, over a year, really enjoyed it, got learned to sing and learned to harmonize and learned to play guitar and a little piano as well as the drums. And But when it came to wanting to be more creative and write music, I decided to make a jump. I had an opportunity to play with a couple guys who were looking for a drummer who also had a hideous name called Hootie and the Blowfish. So I auditioned and we really hit it off. They wanted to write music. And that's what I wanted to do. And so in 1989, in September, I played my first gig with Hootie and the Blowfish. And uh, we started writing. We just worked hard. We said, we're going to get as many gigs as we can. We're going to rehearse every night. We're going to, we don't know how to write songs, but we're going to start writing songs. We have a great singer. We have energy. We have our youth. And that was all we needed at the time. Well, you must have been quite young in 1989, I would imagine. I think it was really young looking back, but I was probably, since it took me six years to get through school, I was probably 24 years old, you know, got in the band 25 shortly thereafter. So, okay. I wanted to uh, find out, are you able to tell our listeners how the name Hootie and the Blowfish came to be? Does that come from anything specifically? It does. And I can tell you how it happened. And I can at the same time say happily that I had nothing to do with naming a band that. All I was was joining a band that was called that. Hootie was 
a person who had a nickname Hootie. Uh, the Blowfish was another person who was nicknamed the Blowfish, both by our lead singer, Darius Rucker. He was in a choral group at South Carolina called Carolina Alive, and he used to give people nicknames. And Hootie had big eyes, the Blowfish had big jowls, and one night they walked into a party and somebody said, oh, Hootie and the Blowfish are here. And Darius, ding, ding, light bulb goes off. You know, I may regret this, he says, but I think that'd be a great name for a band. <laughs> and the next thing you know, him and Mark, our guitarists, were calling their new band Hootie and the Blowfish. Jim, did you have a nickname that they gave you? Not Hootie. <laughs> My nickname, <laughs> no, uh, there was no forethought, funny enough, with Hootie and the Blowfish. No forethought that Darius would think, hey, if we ever get in front of a camera and I'm the singer, they might think I'm Hootie and they might think everyone else a Blowfish. No conception of that when they named it. I think he would come to regret that later. I just was Sony. I was always had sporting nicknames. So when you have a long German last name that's often mispronounced, you come up with all these. Mine is Sonnefeld, so you get called Sonny, Sonic, Sony, Sonny. And Sony is sort of what stuck in that world. So I was just always Sony. Well, hey, look, it's really a pretty acceptable nickname, I think. Sony, I, you could live with that, right? I am living with it. <laughs> <laughs> So Jim, tell us about the life you had within the band Hootie and the Blowfish. What was your life like at that point? Our life was modest. We were finished with college, but we were in a college town. And uh, we liked that lifestyle. We liked the energy and the flow. And we rehearsed and we tried to uh, book gigs by ourselves. We didn't really have anyone representing us. And we were very eager. We were green. We we're willing to learn a lot of songs that inspired us, and we were willing to write a lot of songs that may have been good or may have been otherwise, because uh, we were just learning. But we soon got somebody to manage us who was in a similar situation. He was our age. He came from North Carolina. He was wanting and interested uh, to be a band manager. We didn't have money to offer, per se, at the time, but we offered him the same thing we made, which was, you know, how do you split 100 bucks five ways? <laughs> That worked, but he wanted to be in management. So we had found really the perfect person. So we started booking gigs. 1990 came around. We had written a few songs. We made a cassette demo with a what we thought was sort of a real producer, a legit producer in North Carolina. We started selling that for $5 at our shows. We printed some t-shirts with our name on it, which had a snazzy logo. And we kept making that small circle of opportunities, of gigs, of bars, of parties, we started just trying to increase that. And we were pretty diligent to do anything. We'd drive just about anywhere for an opening slot, get paid 50 bucks and a 12 pack of beer. And that was enough. We could play our original music. And if we had a longer show, a party, they paid better. And we could, we'd have to fill in with a lot of you know cover music, but we were as happy as you could ever be. We ended up getting our own health insurance. We bought a van, which we insured. We paid taxes. That's what you get when you have a bass player who's got a finance a degree in business that he says we're paying taxes and we trust him. So when the 90s start rolling by, we're pretty organized. 90 becomes 91, 92, we put out another cassette, 93, where our crowds are growing, our distance is growing, and we're looking for a record deal at that point. So when did that happen? 
When did Hootie and the Blowfish take that next step up in fame? We got the attention of Atlantic Records and Tim Summer was an A&R rep who came down to see us late in 1993. We signed a deal and by March of that next year, 94, we were being flown to a nice studio in Los Angeles to make a real record with Atlantic Records. And that was about as big as we could dream at that point, just to be able to do that. Uh, there was no guarantee for success, but that was what bands would shoot for at that time, uh, pre-internet, an opportunity to have a record on a major label with a good budget, a real producer called Don Gaiman, who had produced John Mellencamp, all his hits. We were in heaven to go out there and, and make that uh, record, which we would call Cracked Review. And what was going on in your mind during this period in time? Where were you at in your mind? We'd worked hard for five years and purposeful, write music, test it on audiences, keep playing the best stuff, ditch the bad stuff. We were pretty driven and we were having a darn good time. And that was the other thing that kept us always going. There wasn't a lot of money to be made because we reinvested in new recordings or in merchandise or a new van. That didn't matter. We were doing what we enjoyed and loved doing. And so the record deal was a high point, but in our minds, I'd be lying if we didn't hope for success. I don't think any musician that gets out there and writes a song and is willing to stand up in front of a group of people and sing it, I don't think that there's a person that doesn't dream of a little fame and fortune. So we did. <laughs> Were you having fun, Jim? We had the best time. We all enjoyed sports. We either were watching them together and talking trash or playing pickup basketball or tennis or throwing the football. We were good to travel together and share rooms if we could even afford them. So it was always a good time on stage and off stage, frankly. It was, it was a really fun time. And then as you became more and more famous, did your life at any time become not as much fun or did it become hectic or did you continue to enjoy it? You know, I enjoyed it for the most part. We exploded onto the scene after we played the late night David Letterman show in September of 94. And that changed our trajectory. So we started getting on the radio. We started selling a lot of records. 1995 exploded. 1996 was very invigorating as well. We traveled around the world during these periods. 97, same thing, 98. And by the late 90s, we couldn't seem to get any traction at radio anymore. They were still playing our early hits and they weren't as interested in playing our uh, newer songs. And as a result, the audiences started shrinking up a little bit. You know, the turn of the century brings in some frustration. And for me, a more uh, an inside sort of discontent, unsure of where we were going. I had started a family and we just started having kids in 2000. The rest of my band had relocated to the coast. Our, we split with our manager. And so I was feeling a little disconnected. And as a result of that, my partying started revving up. And I, unaware, started using that sort of medicinally as a, as a way to cope with the downward slide of success and fame and fortune and the unsureness of where our careers were headed or where my life was even headed. I was happy to have a family started, but I had some interior thoughts that were um they were just uh, disturbing me on the inside and i drank because it 
it soothed them for the most part. Yeah. Were you still traveling around and playing live music at this point? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no better market <laughs> for a guy who likes to party a little or a lot than the music industry and traveling. You know, the more there's plenty of room for somebody who's acting out. If anything, it might get you a few headlines, even though they're bad headlines, their attention, you know, the guy who goes to rehab, the guy who gets a DUI, the guy who is in a bar fight. Let's admit that those things are also advertising for your band, even though you're acting out. So certainly as we went forward, I was having a good time, but the partying was taking its toll on my family and my bandmates. So we were enjoying it. It was paying bills. We were traveling, but I was headed down a bad path. <laughs> Jim, when did you first realize that your drinking was a problem? Did you realize it or did somebody else make you aware of it? I walked in on a trailer, which was a temporary dressing room for us one night before a show, probably 2001. And there was only a partition in the middle and I could hear two people on the other side, two of our crew guys talking and they were talking rather dramatically about someone they were concerned about. They didn't hear me enter. So I was sort of peering against the curtain, listening intently because I employ, my band employs most of the people out on the road with us. So when they started saying, yeah, we're worried about him and he's been acting out, he's hanging around some weird people. We're all kind of afraid to approach him because he's had these outbursts. And I thought, man, I need to maybe find out who this is because if this is one of my employees, I maybe can help him or discipline him. And the next thing I heard out of their mouths was, yeah, we're really worried about Sony. And they were talking about me and my heart dropped when I realized that people that I employed that were my friends, my party mates were highly concerned, concerned enough to whisper behind a curtain in private because they were afraid to approach me. And sadly, as someone, this only was a wake up call to me in that I said, hmm, I really need to hide my drugs and alcohol better. <laughs> not, uh -oh. not thanks guys for revealing a problem I'm having a hard time admitting. Thanks guys, now I can move forward and get help, no. And that was the first indication that I had a deeper problem is that I, my first thought was I need to hide this. And that only sends me into more secrets, more lies, more hanging around away from my band and that circle to find people that wanted to drink or do drugs like I did. So what happened then? You're now in a situation where you're still drinking, you're still partying, but now you're hiding it from the people who are closest to you. What happened next? Well, I stewed in that sickness for about three years, three plus years of really battling and fighting the demons that told me to drink more, you'll feel better, yet my body can't drink normally. It can't drink successfully. It doesn't know when to turn off and say, ah, two is enough, eight is enough. 3 a.m. is when you go to bed, 6 a.m., you know. So late in 2004, I had sort of a, I guess, come to Jesus moment. A Jesus I didn't really know at the time. My four-year-old daughter came uh, out to my studio I had built behind our home at the time. And it was about 1030 in the morning. I hadn't even made it into our house the night before because I was up late partying. And she said a sentence that sort of changed again my trajectory. She said, Dad, what are, you, what are you doing? When she couldn't get me to 
play her game or to come inside. I was just out of it. Dad, what are you doing? And she said that and I had, she finally scrambled out and left and went back inside. I just had to look at myself and say, what, what am I doing? And it was the first time where I was honestly going to answer the question of what are you doing, dude? <laughs> there's something wrong and there's something you're either running from or to. And that was the day I first called somebody to ask for help for my drinking and drug problem. So you went from, I just got to hide this better to I better do something about this. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired as I come, come to know the saying. And uh, it was a real blessing that the moment that she asked that question, I also had a moment of clarity that said, I'm willing to answer this question, honestly. And I also had one person's phone number in my closet, someone who had offered to help me months previous. I just wasn't interested. And so I called that guy and started uh, getting help through a 12-step program. And it was uh, life-altering. So by the beginning of 2005, I was on a path that was a new path. And they had suggested uh, I needed a spiritual resolve in my life to conquer this addiction problem. And I trusted it. I saw a lot of evidence that it was working. And then I became the evidence uh, in my own life by working through the steps and becoming something more valuable. And hmm. Jim, were you scared when you first started in the 12-step program? I was not scared. I'll tell you this. I was uh, a couple things. I was uh, desperate because I did want an answer. I had no idea why or how I'd gotten in the cycle of picking up a drink every day. Couldn't imagine a day where I didn't drink, yet I knew the drink was killing me. So it's really a quandary. And so when I heard people talking about their solution, like I was interested. I, I really was interested. Now, what was uncovered as I worked through a spiritual solution was that I had to find out exactly what my thinking patterns were. And of course, fear was a great one. Fear was stopping me from doing a lot of things, getting help. It was putting me in, uh, making my ego very inflamed. It was causing me to have expectations. I was in some unhealthy relationships. So I had to discover that fear through that spiritual solution of, you know, it's, it's a critical self-examination that you, you go through and get someone's help while doing it. So I looked at my, and discovered my real defects, my real flaws, my real failures. And it's funny, I, as a man, I was taught something very different in life. We're taught generally, be strong, know your strengths, don't let them see you down, fight hard, don't let them see you too emotional. And here I was being told and discovering that it was only through learning how, what my limitations and my weaknesses were that were gonna get, was gonna get me any resolve. So it was a new way of thinking, but it was a right way for me. Wow. What an amazing revelation for you. I was 40 years old too. I, I suffered from thinking I was something that I wasn't. I'd convinced myself because I was successful in my career. I had a family started. I had a paid for house and a couple cars. That's what society tells us makes you successful. So I looked at that and said, oh, I must be successful. That means I don't have any problems. And in reality, it was uh, a different story. So I learned to find myself. So while you were working through these steps and your life was starting to change, were you still traveling and playing music? I was, and I learned it's not the most fun in that transition. 
<laughs> you know, the music world and traveling around and giving concerts, you're generally going to serve people who are having a party and that could be 500 people or 5,000. And uh, I was one of the few people not partying because I, I couldn't afford to. Uh, my life depended on it. So that was a difficult experience. After about three years and a divorce, ironically enough, in sobriety, I really realized some things about me that were difficult choices to make. One, which was, I don't think I want to tour and travel right now. So that was about 2008 when I came to that realization. And that was the beginning of a dormant period for our band. And what happened with Hootie and the Blowfish at that point? We decided it was okay to take a break. We had slid down the backside of the mountain, as I call it, and the audience were shrinking up. We couldn't get any traction at radio with airplay. Sales were highly diminished. And uh, our singer was also trying to put a, a country project together and, and put a record out. And that was a new area for him. And so we decided as a band, it was, let's take a break. Let's take an indefinite break. It's scary. We all took big cuts in our paychecks, obviously, because we weren't bringing any touring money in. And Darius, our singer, had no guarantees with his country project. So it was it was a difficult time because talk about scary with our fears. Yeah, I didn't know if we had enough money to survive a few more than a few years. I didn't know what my life had for me without being the typical guy that I was, the drummer, Sony, with the long hair. It was a period of transition, which changed quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Tell our listeners about that transition. Well, to make it short, within one year, I had become remarried and my two children from my previous marriage and my new wife's three children became a rather large family, seven. At the same time, Darius Rucker became a massive country star <laughs> and no one saw that coming. It ended up in some ways working out. I realized, wow, maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm dormant from the band. I have a large family I would love to uh, be uh, the father of and be a good leader, a father who's there in the mix. And Darius has got a clear path to continuing his country path, which seems to be very lucrative. So in that sense, gosh, it looked like, hey, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be finally. That's terrific. So what are you doing now, Jim? First of all, how is your recovery going? And what are you doing now with your music and your family? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, after getting a little settled with a, a much larger family and juggling kids and custody, it was new ground for all of us. I realized I do still need a creative outlet in my life. And as a songwriter, uh, my wife encouraged me to write about the spiritual journey. And so in 2010, I put out my first uh, collection of songs that spoke specifically to that. I got off the drum throne and got up to the lead microphone and hesitantly started proclaiming and uh, declaring. And it felt right. I could uh, not only just sing and be creative, but I was able to mix in my recovery life with my, you know, my spiritual life with playing music. And I wasn't sure that would ever happen. And so I uh, ended up finding an audience to go around more local, basically just churches and recovery groups in the state of South Carolina. 
and I would do intermittent gigs and I continued to put out music and write music while being home seven days a week for the most part to be a better father, a better husband, a person of higher integrity, I think. I'm so thankful for your story about your recovery, your adventures. Are you putting out any music uh, that is available to people to purchase? I am. We are gifted these days with this thing they call the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And it saves guys our age uh, trips to a record store, looking through our front pocket for enough quarters to buy an album, (laughs) piece of black vinyl. So I've uh, been able to put up my music uh, under my name, Jim Sonnefeld on Spotify and all the other uh, outlets for music. And I continue to go around and play to groups who want to hear songs about hope and life and restoration and even Jesus Christ and speak to groups also uh, on the side that are specific recovery groups. I continue to uh, work my recovery in that way. And it's a joy. I've you know gotten a little more comfortable standing at the front and, and singing and being that guy. That was not an easy transition, but I feel better doing that. I get to make music in a new way where I'm the leader. And so at times that's easier than being in a group of guys where everyone's got equal voting rights. I did want to ask, I have to ask this. I have two sons-in-law who used to play or they enjoy playing the drums. Is there anything that you can give a person who is a prospective drummer or somebody who has a passion for drumming, is there anything, words of wisdom that you can give about the art of drum playing? Ooh. Is that an unfair question to you? No, that's a great one. You know, do it because you love it to start. I see a lot of kids that seek fame or fortune or see themselves, I can get famous if I do this. Just do it because you love it. And that's just between you and the drum set. It doesn't need to be an audience. Get good, you know, play because you just enjoy playing other people's music or doing drum solos and just spend time with it. I think I prove that you can enjoy it as a solo drummer with some headphones for a lot of years before really having to step out and try and find a band. Some people join bands right away, but I just say, love it, play it because you because you love playing it when they say turn it down you play a little bit louder that's how you <laughs> and hopefully you have a, hopefully you have an understanding neighbor or housemate <laughs> i had a loving mother and we had a basement luckily so my my drum set in 1977 moved quickly from my bedroom where i shared with my little, my brother steve down to the basement where they could shut a door at least behind me and could make a lot more noise just to get back to what you were saying before about going around and you know playing your music, getting in front of the mic and telling your story through music and being at recovery groups and churches. My wife and I had the honor, we were blessed to be able to hear your testimony and hear your music at a recovery group. As you know, we have a very dear mutual friend whose name I won't mention who we happen to have been visiting in South Carolina the night you were a guest speaker at his recovery group. He introduced us, and we just had such a a meaningful evening just hearing your story and your music, and I know it impacted the group that was there, it impacted us, and I know it is really helping lots of people in their recovery. The story that you tell and the humility and 
you know, you're being vulnerable in what you're saying. And I think it impacts people who may be in that place right now where you were at one point, and that's to hide what they're doing, because maybe that's all they need to do. Mm -hmm. And just thank you for what you do. And I have one last question for you, Jim. What would you want your legacy to be? Mm, you know, it's the probably the same philosophy or principle, spiritual principle that helped pull me out of the, the mud and the, the mire when I got clean, which was called love. Mm -hmm. So love is what saved me ultimately being willing to look honestly at myself and humble myself, uh, the fact that I'm by nature self-centered and I need to balance that out with something that's more giving, which I call love. So love was taught to me through Jesus and his sacrificial life. So I think if I had a legacy, it would be Jim was willing to love and he acted out the word love, not in his words, not in his proclamations, but with his time and with his experience. And uh, that would be meaningful to me to be known as somebody that was willing to do that. And I frankly have the first 40 years of my life to make up for. <laughs> so if I can get 40 and balance it out, hey, and they say, yeah, he did good that last 40 years. He really brought it. I'd be pretty happy to have my legacy about that. Uh, Jim, thank you for your story and your honesty. And I know a lot of people are going to be impacted by this. And I wish you the very best with your music and the groups you continue to touch with your story. I hope that the rest of your day goes well. And I want to just thank you again. God bless. Thanks, James. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.